Shannon, for anyone who knows nothing about screenwriting, how would you begin to teach them the craft? Yeah, that's a great question because we all kind of start from this place of not knowing. Screenwriting, unless you decide to go to a film program that's actually teaching screenwriting, it's one of those things that is not a part of our education system or anything like that. So a lot of us are starting from scratch. The great thing about it being 2021 is that there are resources everywhere. So I actually just got this question via email the other day. And my first response was just start writing, right? It's kind of like, even if you are doing creative writing, if you have uh, short stories that you're interested in, if you want to be a journalist and you want to write articles, you just have to start practicing it, right? So that's the first thing that you can do is just start writing down your ideas. The other thing you want to do is then figure out how to hone that craft. Are there screenwriting classes anywhere? whether they're in your area or they are virtual, are there screenwriting groups that are in your area or virtual, or go to YouTube University, right? Which is what we were talking about earlier. And so there are a lot of different um, organizations that have pages like Film Courage, like my page that are teaching the fundamentals of screenwriting. Because the biggest thing is understanding the format, which always tricks people up a lot, trips people up a lot, and understanding the structure. The third thing you can do, which is just uh, in addition to honing your craft, is read screenplays. But make sure that you are reading actual screenplays and not transcripts. So a lot of the times when people will Google and look for a particular screenplay, the transcript will come up. And just so you know the difference, the transcript will be only dialogue and it'll all be formatted left. And it'll just be you know the dialogue from the screenplay because someone actually um, watched the film and just wrote down what everyone was saying. But if you're going to be the screenwriter, you need to learn how they are formatting the scene headings, what action looks like, where everything is placed. So you want to make sure that you're looking at the actual screenplay and not the transcript. When you're looking at those screenplays, ask yourself what you like to write. Ask yourself what you like to watch so that you can then read screenplays that fill in that format and that genre because each genre is going to have kind of their own rules and so you want to make sure that you're learning how to write the thing that you're interested in so what if someone says okay I'm, i've already been working at writing a screenplay i actually have four or five at home but i live in a small town i have a family i have a, a full-time job i don't know what to do from here yeah so the first thing you want to do is get some feedback on your screenplay um, because this industry is one where there are going to be gatekeepers that are going to be in place before you can get to the big studios or the networks or production companies. So in order for your screenplay to get made at all, someone is going to have to read it. And so you want to make sure that your screenplay is in a great place and that it's going to make it past the reader. Right. So a great way to do that is finding people like myself as a script consultant or finding script coverage companies so that you can get another set of eyes on those screenplays. So it's great if you have three or four screenplays. If you only have one, keep writing, <laughs> you know, get to your three or four. Right. And then send them out so that you can get feedback on them to see if they are up to industry standard, to see if there is an actual story there. Now, from there, that's when it becomes tricky, because this is a who you know kind of industry. And if you are in whatever city outside of, you know, Los Angeles, New York, Atlanta, maybe, then it may be a little harder to figure out how you're going to get in. So some of the options that you have are screenwriting competitions. 
Competitions don't mean that you will automatically get your screenplay made, but it's about exposure and access, right? So if you pay attention to which screenwriting competitions are going to have who on their jury reading those screenplays, then you want to try to get in front of those people so that they can help you to get into the door. The same thing is true for any film festivals. You can attend film festivals and maybe meet some of the producers who are there, managers and agents who are there to be able to talk to them about your work. Don't have your screenplay printed out and pass it to anyone. Don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> Keep your printed screenplay at home. But while you're there, you want to be networking and meeting people because since this is a who you know kind of industry, then you need to get out there and meet some folks, right? There are also different kind of pitch competitions that are out there that will also give you an opportunity to pitch to people who are in the industry who then may help you to develop your work to take it to the next place. If you don't want to do Hollywood at all and you don't want to deal with the big machine, then raise your own money, hire your own people, and make your own content because there are many ways for you to get your own content out there now. So you said keep writing uh, if, if I just have one or two screenplays. Mm -hmm. What if my life story is so fascinating, I just have to get this story. You don't understand, Shannon. I have to get this story out. Yeah. It's Once you hear my life story, you will want to make this movie too. Right. And I'm not looking to do other other stories. Yeah. If you're not looking to do other stories, if you don't want to be a professional writer, I'm going to say kind of the same thing applies to you. Because unless you're going to find the money to make it yourself, you still got to get in to know somebody to get them to make it. So you're still going to have to deal with those gatekeepers. So if your life story is so fantastic, and so many of us think that it is, right? If your life story is so fantastic, then you need to find a producer who you can prove to that person that it's that fantastic. Someone has to get interested enough in the story. So you wanna be able to you know, have your log line ready, have your pitch ready, have your screenplay ready, whatever materials you're gonna to have to be able to show them like this is something that you want to tell. And if they decide to buy it and develop it, et cetera, then they will. Um, but if you don't wanna be a professional writer, you may say to yourself, but I don't wanna go through all those hoops. I don't wanna deal with that. I want it made now. Raise some money, hire your people, and make it yourself. Because if it's the kind of story that you just it's your baby and you just wanna make it, then make it and air it to your family, air it in your hometown, air it in your city. You can rent out a theater uh, within the AMC or whatever um, theater you have in your community. You can rent out one of the rooms and show it on the big screen and still have that same experience if you're not trying to become a professional writer. So you just have to ask yourself, what do you want of that project? realize what the different avenues are, and then choose one. And hopefully we'll get to see your story on the screen. Okay, what if, you know, I've heard a lot of bad stuff about Hollywood mm -hmm. and and I don't trust those people. So, you know, I, I, I need you to get it out there for me because I, I, I just, you know, I've been warned me as in me or is this a general question it could be you it could be it could be me going to some but but we could i could role play and say to you like <laughs> yeah. i could you know and and so i i've heard stories and i just don't trust it and i know that you could navigate on my behalf right so what you're looking for is someone to be your representative those people are managers those people are agents those people are entertainment lawyers i'm a script consultant so that's not my part of the job. My part is to get people from idea to pitch. Your representatives then get you into the room to be able to pitch. And then you're going to pitch to executives 
or producers or even actors or directors, whoever it is you can get in the room with so that it can get bought, developed, and then made into, uh, into your film or your television show. So you want to make sure whoever it is you're approaching is the right person. So that means you have to start with research. Because the thing about this industry, if you decide to go the Hollywood route, the thing about this industry is people care about you doing your part and you doing the work. So if you were to approach someone who doesn't do that thing, but you're asking them for that thing, then they're going to consider that this is not something that you're serious about, right? So for example, not every production company or every studio makes the same kind of films or TV shows, right? So if this is a faith-based production company, but you want to make a, a vampire comedy, right? And so now you're pitching your vampire comedy to this Christian-based production company, then they know that you have not done your research, right? You don't understand their brand. And now that is going to look um, bad on you professionally, right? So if you don't want to do that bidding yourself, great. So that means you need to find someone else who does that thing, who is that go-between, who is that liaison, who can do it for you. So do the research to figure out where are the places that would make my kind of movie or my kind of TV show. Who are the people who I need to contact who have made their stuff there, right? Because a lot of those studios are working with the same kind of production companies over and over again, right? So then you figure out, well, who do I need to have a relationship with to go there? So there's still gonna be some work on your part because if you don't know anyone, then you still have to find the people in order for them to do the rest of the work. Um, so it's a tough part of the industry, which is why it's not favorable for everyone. It does take a lot of work on your end and a lot of grit on your end. And even if you do have a representative, if you are trying to be a professional writer, even if you do have a representative, the work doesn't stop for you there. You know, right? So they're out doing some bidding, but you're still gonna get most of the gigs because of the work that you're doing yourself. So if you're in a position of saying, well, that's not what I want to do, then maybe reconsider this may not be the industry for you because there's going to have to be work done on your end and you're going to have to get out of your comfort zone. Okay. And then lastly, and, and I love this advice, um, I've, I've given, uh, my, my work's letting me take two weeks to come out to LA and I'm armed with like five scripts. Um, I've talked to a couple people on social media who say they might want to produce it for me, executive produce it. I haven't found too much about them online. One of them says they have their own company and they have money that they can put behind it and they want to meet. So we're going to meet at a restaurant and um, we're, we're going to talk about them helping me make my project. Mm -hmm. How do I know that I could trust this person? Well, if you've done your research and you haven't found anything, you now have to go with your gut. Go to the meeting, listen, learn, don't overshare, don't sign anything, <laughs> right? Consider this a part of your research. When you're there, do you want them to take care of your baby, right? That's what this conversation is about. Everyone starts from somewhere. So maybe they are new in the producing field. So there isn't much online about them, just like you're new in the writing field, right? So it's not to say that just because you can't find anything about them online means you shouldn't work with them. Maybe, maybe not. You may say, okay, well, we're both starting out. So we could be starting this relationship together. As Issa Rae said, you wanna network this way, right? And not this way. So if both of you are starting in the same place, take the meeting see what happens. But while you're in that meeting, listen to yourself, listen to them, and then make decisions from there. It may work out, it may not.
<laughs> right? But that's going to happen no matter who you decide to work with. Now, if you do see a lot of negative stuff online, then don't take the meeting. There's no reason to take the meeting. If you can't find anything, then take the meeting and just listen, learn, have your questions ready. Ask yourself, what do I need to know in order for me to feel comfortable with doing this? And then when you're in that meeting, ask those questions. A lot of the times what happens is the writer always feels like the person on the you know lowest end of the totem pole, which may or may not be true. So when we get into meetings with other people, we automatically get into uh, our own shells and think that we don't have a voice to be able to request what we need, right? But if this is your baby and these people say they're interested, then you're interviewing them as much as they're interviewing you, right? So when you're there, ask the questions. And if you don't get the information that you need that makes you feel comfortable with having a relationship with them, then you have all the information you need. Shake hands, don't burn bridges, right? Shake hands, say thank you, and then find someone who is the best for your project. And I like that. So uh, Issa Rae said, uh, network like this, yeah, meaning network horizontally. horizontally instead of vertically. She may not have used those words, but that's what she meant. <laughs> I and, don't remember the actual quote. Yeah. Okay. And sorry. And so that means then don't try to like be like this social climber, like do it with people that are starting out at your level as well. Yeah. It basically mm -hmm. means the people who you're starting out with are all moving at the same time. Right. So that means one of those people is going to be in a position that can help you at some point just like you might be in a position that can help them. So make friends with these people. If we're all assistants at the same time, we're probably all gonna be executives at the same time. Or one of them will become an executive and I'll become a writer or another person becomes a director. And now, going back to that who you know thing, right? Now I'm working with the people that I know because we started off together. Versus everyone wants to get into the room and they wanna to talk to Steven Spielberg, right? Talk to Steven Spielberg's assistant. <laughs> First of all, that's the closest person to him, right? But secondly, that person has aspirations too. You know, most assistants, there's nothing wrong with wanting to be a lifelong assistant. We need people who are very organized and can get things done. But most assistants are there because they're trying to get somewhere else. And that's just the path that they chose to get experience, right? So that person may want to become an agent. That person may want to be a manager. That person may want to be a director. If you get a relationship with them because both of you are in a place where you can build a relationship in the first place because you're not going to get to Steven Spielberg and make a relationship just because you're on set one day, right? But if you're nice to the assistant and you guys become cool, then now you start rising together and you have the people that you need when it's time to take a meeting. You can call over to this place because you know the person that's working there because you guys were both PAs on some you know, random music video five years ago. You know, So I think it's really important, as she said, to make sure that you don't ignore these people just because they haven't made it yet. Because some of them will. Maybe you will. Maybe you won't, right? But instead of jumping over those people and going to the people who are already in place who don't have time for you, let's just be honest, right? They don't have that kind of time. Um, so instead of trying to jump to those people, pay attention to the people who are grinding at the same time that you are. So we touched on some excellent points, the right way to start screenwriting. Let's talk about the wrong way to start. Oh, that's the question? Yeah, that's the question. <laughs> Sorry. I think I the, short there, no, right? it's okay. It's okay. okay. I think the wrong way to start is just assuming you know how this thing works, right? Assuming that you know what screenwriting is and so you don't have to do any research, that you don't have to um, try to hone your craft in any way, that you don't have to read any screenplays, that you can just wake up and write, right? And even though I said earlier, 
writing is a part of it, right? That's the first thing you want to do. You want to start getting your ideas out to see what they are, right? But then to assume that that's all it takes is the wrong place to start. Um, it's also the wrong place to start to assume that you don't have to know anything about the business, right? As writers, you're your own advocate. You are your business and you're walking into a business. So as much as it's creative, there's also the business part of it. And so you can have the best screenplays out there, but if you don't know how to play this game of getting into the business, then you're not going to be in the right mindset of it. Um, and also assuming that you're just going to be able to jump right in, right? Like there is, like there's no, uh, putting in the midnight oil, you know what I mean? Of realizing that this is a long game. This Hollywood thing is a long game. So going back to that networking across thing, right? Five years from now, 10 years from now, all of those people are gonna be in different places, not two days from now. So the same thing is true with your writing. It's a process. So going back to knowing the business, realizing that I can write a screenplay today and it might not get made until seven years from now, right? So realizing that it's not a quick thing, it's not an in and out <laughs> you know, kind of machine, which is why you have to ask yourself, what is it that I want from this? What is my end goal? Am I trying to be a professional writer? Am I just trying to get this one thing done? And if, that, if it's only that one thing, do I really wanna put the time and energy into doing it? Another place uh, that you shouldn't start from is thinking that the writer has total creative control, right? This is a collaborative effort filmmaking is. So realizing that there will always be someone critiquing your work. Always, 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 always. And then learning how to separate yourself from that so you aren't taking taking it personally. A no to your work is not a no to you as a person. Like take that in, <laughs> you know, breathe it, understand it. That no to your work may mean this is not the right work for our company. It may mean this is not what we're looking for right now. It may mean there's growth necessary on your part. That's good information to hear. You want to hear, great, I need to grow because now you know what to, you know, what to work towards versus not hearing anything at all because that happens in Hollywood too where people just don't respond to you at all. You don't get anything, right? But getting that no tells you, I now am open to try to sell this somewhere else. This wasn't the right fit for it and getting that information. So I know a lot of people uh, say you need tough skin when you come into this, um, this industry. And yes, that may be true. But if you can learn how to disconnect from your work equaling your worth, right? Then the tough skin is not necessary as much because you know that they're not critiquing you right? They're talking about what's on the page. And when someone else develops it or someone else purchases it, they're now trying to get it to fit the mold of their brand, which is why you have to do your research in the first place to ask yourself, is this the best place for my baby? Is this the best place for my story, right? If you decide to pitch something to NBC, it's got to feel like NBC. So that means the executives are going to mold it into NBC. That means they might lose trim some of the stuff that you think is very important. It may mean that they're going to add some stuff that you never thought about that's going to make this the best show to ever hit television. So you have to be open to that collaborative process. So I think those three or four things are really important that if you're not understanding that, you're starting off in the wrong place. Can you have thick skin, tough skin, and not be callous? Yes, I think so. Um, I think that thick skin that people are talking about is being able to receive feedback 
not take it personally and then therefore not react from an emotional place and start to burn bridges. With that being said, there are plenty of callous people in the industry. A lot of the people who tell people they need to have tough skin don't have tough skin themselves. <laughs> right? Uh, everyone is sensitive, you know, in, in the world that we live in right now, everyone is sensitive. And then you come into an industry where um, we are creating things. And like Erica Badu said, people are sensitive about their stuff, right? So I think that thick skin just really comes from a place of understanding that this is not about you and it's about the work and the stuff. But you are going to deal with all kinds of different personalities, just like you would in any kind of industry. There are people who are not so nice here, right? There are people who are rude here. And then there are people who aren't. And there are people who want to help you. And there are people who want you to grow. But at the end of the day, you're still going to hear no more than, more than you hear yes, right? Someone does have to approve and accept and affirm the thing that you're giving to them. And oftentimes, you're not going to hear the thing you wanted to hear. And if you don't know how to disconnect, if you don't know how to grow that tough skin that they say, then it can start to chip away at who you are, right? Um, and that should not be um, the end goal. So yeah, I think you can definitely have tough skin and not end up being a callous person. But it takes work, you know, it takes work. And then you also said not knowing the industry. So if I want to jump in, one of the wrong ways is to not do research on the industry and who I'm pitching and different things like that. Mm -hmm. What if I say, you know what, I'm just really good at winging it. I've always been good at sports. I can fit into any room. I'm a chameleon in some ways. I don't really need, I can just, just get me there and, and I'll, I'll know who's in charge. Yeah, I, I have a radar for that. Do it. Try it out. Because at the end <laughs> of the day, no one has the same true Hollywood story. <laughs> right? Everyone gets into this industry in a different way. So if that's your strong suit, getting into the room and selling yourself, the hard part is getting into the room, right? When you get in there, let your personality shine, you know? Do the thing that works for you because nine times out of 10, if that works for you in other places, it'll work for you here. As long as whatever it is you're saying can actually be backed up by what's on the page. A lot of people think what's on the page is fantastic and wonderful and it just isn't, right? So now you went into the room and you oversold, <laughs> right? You went into the room and you said, I have this thing. And then we read this thing and it's like, no, you don't, right? So making sure that you're not gonna oversell because now people are gonna remember that you may not be able to get into the room the next time. But other than that, if you're a wing it kind of person, wing it. The question is, how do you get in the room in the first place in order to wing it? That's why you have to know about the industry. Do you ever see that where someone who's kind of underconfident, they actually have really excellent work? Yeah. And it's the ones that are like beating the, the chest and you, wait, you just gotta see. And it's like, mm, might not be there yet. Almost always. It's almost always that. And I say almost because there are outliers, but it's almost always that. Usually the people, you know, the more introverted, more, I'm not really sure, you know, what's happening here. You read their stuff and it's like, you got something here. You can be confident about that. And then it's the people who say, I know I have this thing. You read it and it's like, you don't know how to format a scene heading. So no, you don't have this thing, you know, quite yet. So yes, it happens all the time. And this is not necessarily an industry that expects people to be humble. You know what I mean? So I don't, I don't, I don't mock them for being overconfident. Sure. However, 
That thing on the page is what represents you, period. It doesn't matter what's coming out of your mouth. You know what I mean? So you have to be able to back it up, which is why I said earlier, you need that other set of eyes. You need someone you can trust on your team. As a script consultant, that's what I become. I become a part of your team. Everybody needs a script consultant, even if they don't know that we exist, right? But once you find someone, you need someone who can objectively look at your stuff and let you know if you're doing the thing you intend to do, good or bad right? And if we don't have those checks and balances, then all we have is our own confidence. All we have is our own ego. And you can sometimes oversell um, what you have going on. But I don't think your overconfidence is bad. <laughs> you know what I mean? So, you know, I would rather that than you falling apart because you get a no. You know what I mean? But really trying to make sure that whatever it is you're selling can be seen on the page is the most important thing. There are plenty of people walking around Hollywood with egos. We, we have a lot of those. So I'm not gonna say you can't have an ego. Sure you can, <laughs> you know what I mean? But you gotta be able to back it up. Well, what if I say though, you know what? I ran this by my brother-in-law and he owns his own company and this guy, he knows his stuff. So it's already good. I already know that. Yeah, does he know screenwriting? No, but he, he's built a business and he's very successful. Look, at the end of the day, I'm always gonna say, try it. <laughs> try it go with it send your screenplay to one of these script coverage companies send your screenplay to me send it to a, a competition send it to a film festival and see what happens right because maybe you're right I'm not going to say that you don't have natural talent I have natural talent right I've sent screenplays out that haven't been looked at you know by other people and they've done decently well so I can't say that that, that won't happen for another person but at the end of the day, you want someone who understands not only the industry, but also understands uh, writing, you know, understands the medium of screenplays so that they can give you actual criticism and critique. If not, then it's just opinion, right? Like you can have your mom or your dad or your brother read as much as you want. They'll like it or don't, won't like it, but can they tell you why? Can they tell you how to fix things or are they just giving more opinion? And everybody out there has got an opinion. It doesn't mean that it's going to make your story better. So if you feel that you don't need another set of eyes, totally fine. Put it out in the, into the universe and see if you get what you need in return. And if you don't, then you'll have to change your tactic, just like your characters have to do, you know, when they aren't getting the things that they need. Are there any other best practices that'll help someone get their start? I think those first few of knowing who you are as a writer, what you like to write, what your end goal is, um, and then honing in on that. To me, and then obviously figuring out the business. Figuring out the business is the hardest part because just like there's no formal education on screenwriting unless you're in film school, there's no formal education on the business. Like you can even go to film school and not learn the business, right? That part's gonna be more trial and error. Um, but as far as those other things, those are kind of the best practices. Get out there, try and try again, you know. Um, in the beginning stages, write all kinds of stuff and see what you enjoy. Um, something that I ask my students is, what do you like to watch? What do you like to write? Because a lot of the times, those two things don't add up. And so if you know that going forward, I mean, from, from the beginning, then now you can make sure that your, uh, your samples, your materials, actually add up to what you want to do. Because if you're out in the world saying, oh yeah, I love watching one hour dramas, but you're writing half hour comedies, right? 
then are you saying that you want to work in dramas, but for whatever reason you've been writing comedies, or do you actually want to write in comedies? And so now you know I should be reading those comedy scripts instead of those one-hour drama scripts, even though I like watching those one-hour drama scripts. So really just trying to figure out who you are as a writer, what your end goal is so that you can start working your way there. And then once you're in a little more, you can start concerning yourself with getting representatives and getting all that other kind of stuff. But it really just starts with the craft. And also understanding that everybody out there is just trying. No one has the answer, right? Everybody's um, journey into this uh, Hollywood machine is different. If you decide to go independent, it's gonna be different because you're doing it on your own. So just having the confidence to say, if I've decided that I'm gonna sign up for this, then I'm just gonna do it. And I'm just gonna roll with the punches how they come. Are there any false beliefs that new writers have that sometimes just drive you crazy? Hmm, false beliefs. I think one of the biggest ones is that they think it'll happen overnight. You know, they think, well, I have this idea and it really has to be on TV by next year because what's happening right now, you know, is, 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 uh, is so important that this story has to be told. And I can tell them, I agree with you. The industry just doesn't work that way, <laughs> right? It just takes time. So I think that's one of the biggest ones is just not realizing how much time it takes to do things. Um, I'm trying to think, are, are there any other false beliefs that people have? I think that's the biggest one. Yeah. Okay. So, I mean, let's suppose, let's say I watched um, uh, Startup or Queen's Gambit or one of these excellent series, and I want to do, I have this great idea that it's going to be very similar. Mm -hmm. Is that its own mistake because it's already been done and it's already been done so well? Why try to Not reinvent the wheel? Not necessarily. Not necessarily. In my opinion, there are no new ideas. Uh, especially now, Hollywood is big on reboots and remakes, right? So they're big on established IP, period. So if it's already been done, the question is, what are you going to do that makes it unique? What's going to make it different? You make it different, first of all, because your experience in this world is different. So if you decide to tell a story about a kid who doesn't know who his parents are and lives uh, with his aunt and uncle who are emotionally abusive, it doesn't mean that it turns into Harry Potter, right? But it's still got the same premise that this child is looking for identity, right? So it's okay if you've seen it. Um, you just have to figure out what unique thing you're bringing to the table. The other thing is trying to follow the trends of Hollywood. Some people are into trends. Some people want to write what they are already seeing on television because they think that's what's being purchased. I'm here to tell you if you're watching it, the trend has passed. <laughs> right? Um, in Hollywood, the trends pass every few months, right? So whatever that production company, studio, network, or streamer was looking for in January, they're not looking for that same thing by June. So if right now you're seeing vampires on every network and you're working on a vampire pilot right now in your house, doesn't mean don't write it, but it does mean that by the time you're able to pitch it to someone, we're not into vampires anymore. We've moved on. So I tell people, you know, you have to decide if you're gonna follow the trends or not. That can be a good thing for you if you're already a professional writer and you're already in the game, therefore you hear about the trend before the trend starts. So that yes, you wanna be writing the thing that you know that they're looking for because all of those studios, et cetera, have mandates. And so they can say at whatever part of the year, we're looking for vampire stories. Well, you're ahead of the game. Go write a vampire story. But if you are just starting out and you're seeing all of the vampire stories on TV or on the big screen, then that trend has already passed. So then now it comes to, maybe I should just write what I'm interested in, period. And when it becomes something people wanna read, great. 
Or like I've said before, sometimes it's not about selling something and it's about having it as a sample to show how great of a writer you are. Because if you can write vampires, I'm going to assume you can write ghosts. I'm going to assume you can write werewolves. I'm going to assume that you can write in this science fiction fantasy you know, world or maybe horror, whatever it is, uh, whatever kind of story it was. So you can still use that as a sample to get you into the next thing. It may not get purchased. And if you want to be a professional writer, then I think it's a great balance to look at anything you write as a possible sample versus I have to sell it because you don't have control over what happens on the other side unless you're doing it independently. So if you write something as I have to sell this, then now you're setting yourself up for disappointment if you don't. Versus saying, I'm writing a fantastic sample and I'm going to show this to someone and those people might like it and they might decide they want to buy it. Now, win, <laughs> right? Now you have a win. Um, but yeah, I would say just focus on writing what you like to write. Um, that's what makes it fun. If it's not going to be fun, we could all be doing something else, right? We can all be, uh, we're, we took on this creative job because it's supposed to be fun. If it's not going to be fun, then we could be doing whatever job someone else tried to push us into. What if I say, well, I'm going to resurrect an old show like The Office, mm -hmm. but we're going to all be on Zoom or, or, or Facebook Live or, or Google Chat. And we're going to just it's going to be so cool and it'll be the same office politics. But now we're all virtual and our bosses are spying on us at home. Yeah. So it'll be really cool. And it's been a few years since the show was on, so I can resurrect it. Right. Maybe. <laughs> right. If someone out there is interested in it, if someone out there is looking for something like it, um, like I said before, Hollywood is kind of interested in established IP at this point. And not to say that you would then have to get in touch with the people who made the office and blah, blah, blah. It'd have to be different enough because if it's the same thing, then now you're infringing on their copyright. Uh, okay. <laughs> right. So you're not necessarily making the office unless you are, right? There are a lot of reboots that are being made right now and they're making uh, Bel Air, which is a reboot of the Fresh Prince of Bel Air, right? With an entirely different group of people. But that means that they went through the proper channels to make sure that there's no infringement, et cetera, et cetera, so they can do that. So instead of saying you're making The Office, make something that is new and original and say that it's like The Office, right? Unless, of course, you have the permission to be making the office and doing it, you know, doing something different with it. But, you know, again, like I said, there, in my opinion, there aren't, aren't any new ideas. I've had people pitch me the same idea in three different states from three different people. And one of those people wasn't even a writer. And I was just like, wow, <laughs> this is crazy how we're all living in the same world right now. So we're all getting the same information. And that's making a lot of us create the same ideas, if that makes sense. Um, so if there was something about the office that you enjoyed, ask yourself, what was it about the office that I enjoyed? Maybe that's the thing that you take and turn into your own thing because the office doesn't own office politics, right? If any of us have ever worked in a corporate space, then we know office politics, right? So the people who made the office don't own that space. What they did to make it different was the way they filmed it, the mockumentary style, et cetera, et cetera. But other than that, it's all the same stuff that we'd see in any other kind of office, right? Um, so asking yourself, what is it that I liked from that? And then how can I put that into this idea that I have that's about Zoom or about whatever it is so that it, I'm turning it on its head so that there's something unique about it. And now I can utilize the office as proof that this may work but I'm not necessarily selling you the office. Ah, uh, so maybe like Pam, she was the, mm -hmm. yeah, okay. So say, let's say Pam's character type, 
let's say she was the go-to gal and she knew where all the staples were and you know and everybody kind of needed her all at once so i'm going to make a, a series sort of like based on her life but it's she's going to be at home but it's not really taking the office's IP. It's just a, a kind of a caricature of mm -hmm, Pam. Mm -hmm. okay. Exactly. Someone like Pam. Right, if you okay. decide to make it Pam, then now you're infringing. Right? Okay. But if you do something like Pam, because again, Pam exists because that person exists in all offices. There's always somebody who knows where everything is, you know, that maybe that's the coordinator, maybe it's um, uh, the admin, uh, the uh, the CEO's uh, administrative assistant or whoever it is, but somebody in that office, everybody knows, I'm gonna go ask her, she's gonna be able to get it to me. I'm gonna ask him, he's gonna be able to get it. So that's not a new idea, right? So being able to say, well, that's what I thought was interesting, this particular character knowing everything about the office, right? So then you have to then, of course, build your story from there because that's a character, that's not enough <laughs> to get you a story or a pilot or a series. But understanding that that's the thing that you're pulling from, then that can work for you. So Pam's a remote worker, but she has another job on the side that her boss doesn't know about, and she's doing it on company time. Mm -hmm. And it's a little bit more nefarious. And so she's gotta make sure that she's on point for the office, but then she's doing, I don't know, she's taking adult surveys or she's doing yeah, yeah, something yeah. that's like, it's not horrible, but it's like, whoa, you know, Pam, what are you doing? Right, so. right, right. So the balance of that will then be what the series is about. And then figuring out what the stakes are that she is doing that. Like, does she has she signed some kind of clause in her everyday job that says that she shouldn't be or can't be doing this thing so that if they find out that she's doing this thing, then this thing is in jeopardy? Right. right? Okay. So you have to ask yourself, you know, what is the story? Right. Someone doing those two things. OK, cool. But what do they have to do with each other? How do they, you know, crash into each other to cause a problem? Like, does she have a problem trying to balance the two? You sure. know, or what does it become? So you still have to then build out the entire story around Pam or, you know, the Pam like character to see what it's going to become. What is screenplay structure? Ooh. Very big question, right? Um, but I would look at screenplay structure as how you tell a story. And depending upon the kind of screenplay you're writing, the structure is different. In general, we've all learned about three-act structure in some way, shape, or form. Um, that three-act structure can then be broken down into just two acts if you're writing a half-hour multi-camera comedy. Uh, it can be spread out into four, five, or six acts if you're doing a one-hour drama. But your half-hour single camera and your features are usually told in three acts. And if you want to break it down and make it as simple as possible, your first act is your setup. It's giving me all the information I need to know of why I am here. Your second act is the journey to reach the goal. And then your third act is what happened now that I reached the goal, right? So it's your resolution. So you have your setup, your journey, and your resolution. And so if you can understand that anytime we hear a story, bedtime story, Dr. Seuss, what happened last weekend, we're all listening for the setup, the journey to success or failure, and then what happened after that. So to me, that's like the simplest way of talking about what structure is for a screenplay. I like how you broke that down because when we think about, let's say a family friend or a bunch of friends getting together, telling a story about what happened last weekend, it makes sense. If they leave out 
the, the second act that's but when we think about a story that we're writing mm-hmm. we could I could see where things would get convoluted yeah because you also even if you don't understand story structure you feel it so you have a cousin or a friend who doesn't know how to tell stories right so they come in and they go oh let me tell you what happened last weekend and you know that this particular cousin or friend is just going to talk on and on and on and on <laughs> and never get to the point of what happened, right? But amongst your friend friend group or amongst your family, they're like, no, 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 let such and such tell it. Because, you know, such and such is going to give you the setup, the journey, and what happened, you know, the resolution. You know that you're going to get there. You know that they're going to give you the details that you need, nothing ex- extraneous, or they're going to say, quick sidebar. And then they'll give you this extraneous stuff, and then they'll come back to the story and keep you following the journey, right? So storytelling is storytelling is storytelling, no matter where you're telling it, right? Um, in a screenplay, it has to be more concise and it has to be visual. Um, but even those people who don't specifically know, they can't give you the vocabulary. They don't have the words to explain, you know, how to tell a story. We're hearing people tell stories all the time. You know, like going back to that office thing, there's somebody in your office who always stands around the kitchen or whatever, and they have a story, <laughs> you know, yeah. blah, blah, blah. And you enjoy their stories. And then there's somebody else who always has a story and you're trying to sneak away from the conversation <laughs> because you know you're going to be here for the next 15 minutes and have learned absolutely nothing. And so that's kind of how you know that your screenplay isn't working because we're 30 pages in and I don't have I don't have any information. We're 30 pages in and I don't know what this screenplay is about. We're 30 pages in and I don't know why I've been dropped into it, right? I don't know what I'm here to witness because there's a whole lot of talking and going around the you know, bend and over the river and through the woods, but I still haven't the slightest idea what my protagonist is trying to do or possibly who my protagonist is in the first place. Right. So sometimes that happens. Um, But yeah, storytelling is storytelling. So if we start to allow and it's hard when you're the writer, right, when it's on the page, because now there's all kind of pressure and stress and stuff. But if we allow ourselves to step away from it and just look at it like any kind of story, we can ask ourselves, like, does it feel like my story is moving forward or does it feel like people are just kind of talking around some things, you know, but that's why, again, people like me exist because maybe you can't see that yourself. And I pride myself on being objective. My students tell me all the time, you're objective, right? I even had a student in one of my classes on the university level who said, can you teach the rest of our teachers how to be objective in this way? Because when I read their stuff, I don't make them become a particular kind of writer. I'm able to look at them as individuals, which means they write the way that they write. It's not my job to make them fit into this box, right? But a lot of the times you may send your work out and what you receive back is a whole lot of opinion about what your writing should be. And you should change this and it should be this and you should have that and blah, blah, blah. And it's like, well, that's a great story, but that's not my story. That's not the one that I'm trying to tell, right? So finding someone else who can objectively look at your stuff, they can help to help you to understand that your story is kind of going around in circles and not pushing forward. Just like when uncle such and such starts telling a story, <laughs> you know, whether it's a drunken one or not, right? You know, he's never going to get to the point, guys. We can go continue playing our basketball game. Right. So when you say that um, you like to to work with people and and find out the way they tell a story and who they are, mm-hmm. um, 
how, like, how is that? Cause, cause so, somebody could say, well, this is just who I am. And I, I don't really like to formulate full sentences mm -hmm. and I'm just, this is just my style. Yeah. Is that acceptable? Or? If it's working. Okay. That's why you have to be objective because sure we can say I need full sentences, but if it's working, if the fact that they're shortening their sentences is helping me to feel the tone that they're setting, helping me to feel the urgency of the story. I read a screenplay the other day and every single line of action was just one sentence, but it made the story simple because it was about a simple guy doing a simple thing. I didn't need more, right? But if this were a more convoluted premise, if it were a more uh, dramatic story where I needed to feel more things, et cetera, then now my note would be, I need more, right? And here is why. But I was able to tell this particular writer, usually I would say I need X, Y, and Z, but this is working for you because I also want them to know the rule, right? I also want them to know someone else might read this and say X, Y, and Z, but it's working for you. The same thing is true with, um, I sometimes have people who instill their voice too much as a writer, and so it's jarring, right? Now I'm hearing you and it's pulling me out of the story. Sometimes that works though. Uh, same thing with camera angles, right? It's a no-no for writers to infuse camera angles in their screenplay because it's distracting to the read. I'm into something emotional, then here you come with big capital letters, close in. I already know that I'm close because I feel it, because I'm reading the story. And now you just ruined it for me by yelling close in as if the director won't feel that from the context that you've set up. But then I read somebody else's screenplay and they didn't use it a lot. But the moments that they did worked. It felt right. It didn't pull me out. So that's what I mean by you have to be objective to the story. You have to understand what is this story trying to do? What does it feel like? What's its tone? What's its writer's voice? What is it intending to do? And are they doing that? And if they are, then why would I tell them to take away the things that are making that thing happen? You know? So if we took, let's say, a young Charles Bukowski in a writing program, and you know, there's just one way to do this, and then he's presenting this work that might be, you know, might raise some eyebrows, but that's who he was, that's his style. Mm -hmm. And and maybe he just didn't find the right teacher, let's yeah. say. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, the thing is not everyone's a teacher. Just because you know how to write doesn't mean you know how to teach people how to write. That's just the truth of it. And I think we take the whole, we take the education part of it, uh, um, not seriously enough, right? Um, so maybe that is the case because also teachers are only teaching what they've been taught. Depending upon how much experience you've had in the industry, you may think it has to be this way because I was taught it has to be this way. But if you're continuing to read screenplays, even as a professional writer, you'll see that people break rules all the time. People are doing stuff all the time. People make terrible stuff that makes it onto TV and onto the big screen all the time. So why would I tell my client that wouldn't work? You can't do that. It's just not true. You can do anything you want. Now I'm going to tell you what the industry standard looks like. I'm going to tell you what people expect, but do you, because maybe it's going to work. Now there are some things that you just can't do. Like if it's, if it's unreadable, then it's not going to work. <laughs> you know what I mean? If I can't follow the story because of 
whatever risk you're taking or creative licenses you're taking, then it's just not going to work. But if I can follow the story and I understand the story, a lot of those rules really do fly out of the window. They really do. I'm going to teach you what those rules are, but again, if it's working, then I'm not going to stop you from doing the thing that's working. Think about Aaron Sorkin and how much dialogue are in his screenplays. We're told all the time, you can't have that much dialogue. You can't have that much dialogue. Think about Shonda Rhimes and how many monologues she has in her screenplays. And we're told all the time, can't have monologues, can't have monologues. Where here are two examples where it's working very well <laughs> for these two people. So I just don't believe in the extremes. I don't believe in, yes, this is going to work and no, that's not going to work because Hollywood lives like in that in-between space. And I think the reason I can give that information is because I have the experience to know. Um, and then also because I am a teacher. So I am trying to teach you to fish and not giving you fish. Right? So I'm always going to give you the why, the how, the possibilities, the what ifs. And sometimes that doesn't work for people because they need to know exactly what it is. But I try to explain to them, Hollywood is not one of those places, not black or white. It really isn't. It's all that stuff in between. So you're trying to write a story that is well executed, that's, that's doing what you intended to do, that you're going to be proud of, that represents you as a writer. Because all of us are going to look back on something that we wrote and go, oh my God, that's terrible. Oh, I can't believe I wrote that. So you're going to grow from it anyway. So you just have to get to a place where you're happy with it and, and it represents you. So for someone like Aaron Sorkin or even Tarantino, I'm sure there were people telling them, this is too much dialogue. I'm sure of it. But they were able to get in with whichever way they got in, because I don't know their stories, right? But however it is they got in and it worked out for them. How is screenplay structure different from outlining a screenplay? Oh, I actually don't think it's different at all. Um, your structure should be there from the beginning. And if you're outlining from the beginning, you should be able to follow your structure there. Um, to me, the biggest difference is, in my opinion, I look at a beat sheet like one-liners of your biggest moments. And then I look at an outline of fleshing that out so that now you know exactly what's happening in every single scene not necessarily just those big beats, even though for some people that's all they need, but now you start to see the connecting beats that get you from the large beats to the next large beats. And then the screenplay is actually the creative part of writing out the scene, <laughs> right? So that's how I explain it to my students. Um, some people don't make beat sheets. Some people just make outlines. Some people don't make outlines and they just make beat sheets. And some people just write the screenplay. You have to figure out what's best for your process. In my opinion, you want to do some work before you get to that screenplay because the white page is intimidating. And if you don't know where you're going, it will eat you alive, <laughs> right? So just like with your Google Maps, you got to put in the address and know what you're following. Even if you decide, okay, I'm going to shut it off now. I kind of know where I'm going. I don't have to keep looking at my GPS. Great. Same thing for your beat sheet or your outline. Um, so for me, I usually use the Pixar formula as my beat sheet. I love the Pixar formula. If you're looking for one, you can go Google it. Now I've added some things to my Pixar formula for my students because there's some more emotional work I want them to do uh, before they you know, get past this point. But basically it asks you about the beat sheets, uh, not the beat sheets, the big beats uh, starting at once upon a time. And um, now you have this layout of what your story is that you can post 
next to your computer or wherever it is you want to put it so that you always know where you're going. Because as creatives, we will veer off the road and that's how we end up with uncle such and such's story that never <laughs> makes it back to where it's supposed to be. <laughs> so if you have your outline or your B sheet or your Pixar formula or whatever it is that you're using, you always have something to come back to to go, oh yeah. Because you also have, you know, another uncle who's like, where was I? What part was I on? Blah, 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 blah. Well, now you don't have to ask anyone. It's right here. You've written it down. You know where you're going. And because every scene is supposed to be cause and effect, what happens in this scene is because of what happened in that scene. Then looking at that beat sheet lets you know, these are the scenes that I need to get to the next beat. And these are the scenes that I need to get to the next beat because you know that the point is I need to get from A to B to C to D to E, you know, whatever. For some people, they only need to know A, G, M, and Z, right? I need to know A through Z. So my outlines are long. You know, my outlines can be 60 pages long if I'm writing a feature. And if it's like I did one, um, and I want to say it was somewhere between 30 and 50 pages long because it was a feature and it was science fiction. So there was a lot of stuff and rules that you have to figure out. If you don't know the answers to those questions, you don't want to get to the page because then you can kind of get lost in the sauce. Um, but you know, some people don't need everything written out. I like it all to be written out because I also do my revising in the outline. So as I start writing the screenplay and new things do come because the outline doesn't have to make, it's not in concrete, right? So new things do come. Oh, that's great. That's good. What you now have to realize though is that new thing is going to affect the outline, what's coming next, maybe what came before it. So now you can go back to the outline and go, okay, I got this new thing. So let me move this, copy and paste, move that around, blah, blah, blah. And now you can see what the new story looks like without having to do it in the screenplay, which takes a lot longer. Believe me, I've done it, right? So I utilize my outline throughout the entire process, which is why it's so much longer. But back to your original question, the structure is there. That's why you're outlining structure needs to be there. If you're outlining and there is no structure, your screenplay won't have any structure. So the outline tells you what you know and what you don't know if you're outlining correctly. I'm actually in the middle of teaching my outlining class right now. It's called Idea to Story 2.0. I have it online for people to purchase to do it at their own pace, but then I do it once a year where you get me live. And so we're now going through all of those moments because I feel that if you have a an effective outline then you will write your screenplay far more efficiently and so i give them workbooks and worksheets that they can do throughout that they can do with any project they're doing but mostly so they can eventually figure out what their process is because they all may decide i don't need this worksheet i don't need that i don't need to do the, this outline but if i do this thing this is the thing that i need that helps everything to open up so i'm just trying to help them to figure out what their process is while teaching them structure and then hoping that they decide to do outlines forever but they may not so that's kind of a go a go at your own pace you said i have two two, have two versions, versions of it okay. right so the first idea of the story is go at your own pace um you get all of the videos all of the worksheets etc and you can just watch them on your own and you know figure it out as you go and if you have any questions then you can sign up for kind of like an office hour thing with me and then i'll kind of talk you through your homework if you sign up for the live version which i only do once a year then we spend two or three hours of lecture every week and then 45 minutes to an hour of just one-on-one -on -one talking about your story mm. because if you take a screenwriting class, a lot of the times you're intaking the general information, 
but you're not translating it to your story. So the only way that I know that they actually learned what social proof was is if I start talking to them about their characters and social proof. I only know if they really understand an inciting incident if I'm talking to them about their inciting incident and what information we got in during the normal before the inciting incident, so on and so forth. And so I think people enjoy that part because then they start to realize, oh yeah, I, I, don't, I don't know, <laughs> right? And it's like, yeah, so you can't go to the blank page yet because you don't know. But learning that you don't know is just as helpful because now you know what holes need to be filled before you get to the page. When a writer is outlining a screenplay, does that mean they are creating structure at the same time? Yes, exactly. That's exactly what that means. They should be looking to understand what scenes make up my normal. And when I say normal, that means the everyday life of these characters, whether the camera showed up or not. Like we're all living our normal lives every day. So your characters are people who are doing whatever it is they do. For an action film, that means we're probably gonna open in action because in their normal lives, they're already a police officer, firefighter, ex-military, whatever it is they are, right? Um, so now you're asking yourself in the outline, what scenes am I using to show my character's normal life, right? Until we get to the inciting incident, which is the thing that's gonna crash into that normal life, create change, therefore causing a goal or a problem. So you have to ask yourself, what do those scenes look like? What's that sequence of the inciting incident? What is the inciting incident? How does it make my protagonist feel? You know, all of these great questions. And then you're gonna to start to figure out, well, what is the debate? Is there a debate? Do they have to decide to go on this journey or is it so urgent that no matter what, they're going on the journey? Then you have to fix, so you have to figure out what do those scenes look like, right? Because you know that, that there'll be a, a debate. What's the debate? Who are they debating with? Where are they debating? Why are they debating, right? You get to figure all of that out. So the same is true throughout the entire screenplay, but in the outline, you're putting in all of the structure, all of those big beats, but asking yourself, what are the scenes? How do I visually show this beat? Because a million people can probably tell you the inciting incident is a car crash. Great, where were they going? What were they doing? Who else is in the car? Where did the car crash happen? <laughs> you know, did the ambulance come or did they stay there by themselves and you know pass away? Or did you know they end up getting out? Did random people on the side of the road come pull them out? Like what is the scene? Right? And so in the outline, you get to start asking yourself what those scenes are and putting them down, not in um, you know, uh, screenplay format, you know, but just the information of they were driving their child to the nursery when they got hit by a, a semi-truck, semi whatever, that came through the light, and then we cut to the jaws of life getting them out. That's the information you need in your outline so that when you get to your screenplay, you can write it all beautifully, you know, however it is you're gonna write it. Well, if we take something maybe that's less dramatic, so if we go back to our, our um, sort of metaphorical Pam character mm -hmm. who's like this office administrator, everybody needs her. Now she's remote working. Mm -hmm. Her phone is buzzing all the time. She has no separation between her job and her, her life. Mm -hmm. But then maybe the inciting incident, because she's gonna find this other job which she'll moonlight during office hours and they won't know it because she'll have a second computer. Mm -hmm. Maybe she meets a woman in a store and they just have a fun exchange talking. And she says, what do you do? And she says, oh, I'm you know, an office administrator. And the other woman does these surveys, right? Mm -hmm. And she's kind of fascinating. Mm -hmm. There's something a little 
interesting about her. Mm -hmm. So she goes, hey, give me your email and all. So then maybe that's where. Yep. And she sees this woman and she's kind of intrigued by her because she, she's just different. And Pam always does the right thing. Mm -hmm. And this woman's a little bit rebellious, a little bit interesting. And maybe that's the, the incident. Yeah. So it's not the jaws of life, mm -hmm. but it's something. Yeah, something is changing her normal. Her normal is I'm working at home from Zoom. Every <laughs> single day I'm answering the calls and I got to get dressed from here up so that I can be present when they need me, blah, 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 blah. Today for lunch, I decided to go for a walk. And while I'm on that walk, because I go into the store to buy my lunch or whatever, I meet this person. That person just changed her life. So that's the inciting incident. And that small information is what's in your outline. Then you'll flesh that out to actually be, you know, full scenes and however it is you describe them and the action and the dialogue and blah, blah, blah. That's the screenplay. But in the outline, you say, Pam's working from her desk all the time. She's dressed from here on up, blah, 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 blah. She's always answering the phone, la, la, la. And today she decided to go for a walk for lunch and she bumps into insert person. Right. Right. That's what you would have in your outline. Okay. So that would be the inciting incident mm -hmm. if it wasn't as dramatic where mm -hmm. there was a full action. Yeah. Scene. The inciting okay. incident can be the smallest thing. Like comedies don't have huge inciting incidents. Romantic comedies have a breakup or meeting the other person or you know whatever it is but whatever that thing is it's different because if it's not different why am i here i don't i'm not here to watch people's everyday lives i have my own life i can go watch my friends lives <laughs> you know what i mean i am here because something is changing for them and i now need to watch them to struggle through it grow through it whatever is going to happen on that journey that's why i'm here so there has to be an inciting incident something has to come in and make change cause problems, cause a goal that needs to be achieved. What is your process for teaching screenplay structure? Yeah, so I start with the, screen, the screenplay. I start with the Pixar formula. From the Pixar formula, I go into character work. I am uh, someone in my own time who likes to psychoanalyze things. I'm always asking people, why, how, you know, what, what happened to you? And so we do some work like that for the characters. The more that you understand uh, people, the more you can understand your characters who are people. So in my class, which may make some people uncomfortable, but in my class, we talk about ourselves a lot. We're doing a lot of inner work um, because my class is also about fighting writer's block. And in my opinion, writer's block comes from lack of confidence and lack of preparation. So we spend a lot of time talking about confidence, talking about what our fears are, what our flaws are, what our wants are, what's standing in the way of those wants. Why? Because that's what's happening for your characters. What do they want? What do they need? What's standing in the way of that? What are they, what are they afraid of? What are their flaws that are going to get in the way of them getting the thing that they want, right? So if you start to understand how your own life, the life of your tribe members, I call my classes tribes, the life of your tribe members, um, if you start to understand why they do the things that they do, then you start to understand characters a little bit more. And now your characters can be more authentic in their journey. Because oftentimes I can feel the writer making characters do things versus it feeling like an actual decision that the character would make. So we spend some time on characters. So I'd say that's week two. That's actually just what I did on a couple of days ago, week two. That was last night. It was just last night. Oh. Uh, it's hard to keep up with time these days. Um, it's all one It's all spectrum, one big yeah. thing. Uh, then we um, start to talk about goal setting. Um, because every single story is about your protagonist solving a problem or reaching a goal. 
That's why we are here. So we have to figure out what's the best goal for them to reach or who's the best character for that goal, depending upon which one you begin with. Um, and then we start talking about, now how are they physically going to achieve it? Because again, going back to, they need to save the world. Well, that's general. <laughs> what are they going to do? How are they going to save it? And start asking ourselves, well, what are the things that get in the way? So in the uh, fourth week, we start talking about the complications. We start talking about the stakes. Um, in, in week three, we also talk about world building um, because every single story, you have to teach us the rules of that world. If it's just regular old present day earth, something that we see in the first three minutes are gonna tell me that that's what it is. So you're still teaching me, right? If it's um, a new industry, like I love to use devil, the devil wears Prada, right? I'm not in the fashion industry, so you have to teach me how it works here, right? So they open up by showing me how all the other women are nicely dressed and our protagonist is not, right? They show us by when she gets into that office, how everyone is looking at her, judging her, and then when Meryl Streep's character is gonna show up, everybody is chaotic because they're trying to make sure they get in line. I'm learning about this industry, right? I'm learning about what the rules are here, even if there's not much being said out loud. So we talk about that. And especially if you're doing something that's science fiction, fantasy, supernatural, horror, then you, there are rules you have to set up. I need to know, Candyman comes when I say it how many times, right? Because if not, then I don't have the suspense. Now, if I see a person standing in the mirror and they only say it twice, should I be afraid? Because I don't know how many times they're supposed to say it. If I understand they have to say it five times, I don't even remember if it's five or three, but they have to say it X amount of times. Then now I know when she gets on number four that I should be on the edge of my seat. But I don't know that if you haven't given me the information. So we talk about world building. Um, and then in the last week, that's when we finally start talking about outlining because I want people to know there's not one way to do it, right? You can do it a million different ways. So I show them different examples of, of how you can outline, but all of those things that we're learning basically uh, break into those large beats. And let me be specific about those beats because I've said them, you know, said that word a lot. Um, but I'm talking specifically about the normal, the inciting incident, the goal or the problem, getting into act two, knowing what your midpoint is, knowing what your rock bottom, you know, is, knowing what your point of no return is, which some people kind of mix into that rock bottom midpoint place. It basically just means we get to a place where something changes so much that our character has to change tactics. That's just all it means. Everybody gives it a different word, right? Um, but then we got to get up to our climax, which is your highest point when your bad guy is going to meet your good guy or your character is going to meet their problem head on. And then we get to come down to the resolution where we say, what have they won because they you know, succeeded or what did they lose because they didn't? Yet throughout that entire journey, we were following them emotionally. So even if they didn't succeed, we still feel satisfaction with the story. So all of those beats are what I mean when I'm saying structure. All of those beats fit into your act one, act two, and act three. And so I utilize those different weeks to talk about those different um, elements because they all break into those big beats. And how can you tell, and I realize this is very specific yeah. and we don't have something to workshop, but just vaguely when someone is really forcing an action from their character mm -hmm. and an intention? It, it can be because the evidence is just not on the page or the evidence is on the page and your character isn't doing what you've told us that they do, 
right? So if you've said, this is a really shy character, every single thing you've shown us is that they're shy. And then on page 15, they stand on top of a table and dance. <laughs> what? That's not who you told me this person was. So unless you showed me something that motivated this, <laughs> right? Then now I know you just needed her on a table dancing because of whatever else is gonna happen in the screenplay. Not because she would get on that table and dance. I see, okay. Yeah. So we're missing what would ever cause that if this was truly what the character mm -hmm. would do. Okay. Yeah, so we're missing that. So either it's just not there at all or it's the opposite of what you told us. Right. Yeah, okay. and so it's like, we know that you needed this character to end up in jail because now the son has to avenge you know, whatever's going on with the, with the parent being in jail. But it isn't set up that our character would have even done any of those things that they did to be in jail. So now I know you're just forcing them <laughs> into this position because of what you need to happen from that. So it's like, you gotta set me up with the information so I can believe it. Because if I don't believe it, then now I, now the stakes aren't as high. You know, now you just start to lose me as, a, as an audience member. Yeah, so it's just like, I need the evidence. So that's a lot of what I'll write in my notes. I don't, there's no evidence of this. This doesn't ring true. You know, like, where did this happen? When did we meet that? Well, you said on page this that this is how they feel. But on page this, they feel this way. What motivated that change? Where, did, where was that? Because maybe I missed it. I probably didn't. But maybe I missed it. But if I didn't, if I didn't miss it, then now you know it's missing and you can figure out how to make that connection because everything is cause and effect. People are cause and effect. If I have an argument in this room, when I walk into that room, my energy is gonna be different if I had not had an argument in this room. So the same thing is true about your characters. Why are they doing the stuff that they're doing? What happened on the page to show me uh, that motivates any of their decisions? How does a writer introduce a protagonist in a way that makes the viewer or the reader want to follow that character? Yeah, good question. I actually did an entire workshop on how do I, and I call them how the F, right? All of my workshops are in the <laughs> what the F workshop series. <laughs> so okay. this particular workshop was how the F do I introduce my protagonist, right? And there are a million ways to do it, but what we're looking for is what information are you going to give me about them in their normal life that makes me like them or relate to them? I don't have to do both. It's 2021, so I don't have to like the character. They can be totally unlikable, but something about them has to be, uh, I have to be able to relate to in order to care enough and invest in them on this journey. So um, I use the word social proof. And basically what that means is prove to me, going back to the evidence, right? Prove to me who they are on the page, whether that means we're receiving information from someone else or we're watching them do the thing. Because just like regular human beings, you can only take what they say about themselves with a grain of salt, <laughs> right? So I can sit here and go, I'm an expert, I'm an expert, I'm an expert. But unless you actually hear me giving my expertise on something or you hear from someone else who you trust who says, Shannon is an expert, then you're probably gonna say, I'm not one. So on the page, you have to then show us that your characters are whoever it is you want us to believe that they are. So one of my favorite examples is using Scandal, right? We open up Scandal hearing from two other people talk about Olivia Pope. One of them is the trusted source. The other one is the fish out of water who 
already has some kind of admiration for Olivia Pope, right? So as we're hearing them talk about Olivia, they're putting her on this pedestal. And now we are therefore intrigued to go, well, who's this Olivia? Like, I want to know her. She seems cool. And then in the next scene, Olivia now has to live up to the thing that we just heard. So now you have to show us in action. They could have gone to the next scene and Olivia was just sitting there having a meeting, talking, you know, on the phone to herself. But instead, they put her in a situation to show her social proof in doing her job. And so hearing from those other people first and then seeing her actually do the thing is what made us want to journey with Olivia Pope. So the same is true for your characters. There is no particular kind of formula. But what I will say is you got about five to seven minutes to get me engaged with your protagonist. Um, some stories won't start with the protagonist, which is fine. But that means if it didn't start with the protagonist and then we meet them, you have less time to get me to like or relate to them because I'm already X amount of minutes into your film. So for example, I'm teaching from Armageddon right now, right? We don't meet Harry Stamper, I think it's Stamper, until like page 10, which means we are, we've been here for 10 minutes already because we got our inciting incident on page two. So that means the urgency is already there. They're already making up a plan. By the time we meet Harry, I only get like three pages to really understand who he is and jump into action with him to decide to invest in him. So now you have even less time because I'm already 10 minutes into it. But either way, whatever it is, I see them doing first. So you can't be... Um, generic about that. Like oftentimes I will read a screenplay and it's just, oh, such and such woman who's beautiful is cooking breakfast. And it just seems like she's cooking breakfast because she needs busy work in the kitchen. Not because cooking breakfast teaches us anything about her, right? Is she cooking breakfast because she's a stay-at-home mom and she's in her pajamas and she has to get up early even though she's going to be at home, but because she's got to get husband out, she's got to get kids out and she's getting it done? Or is she career woman who's cooking breakfast so she doesn't really have much time because she's on the phone at the same time and she's just trying to get something in and it's a smoothie and she's running out? Or is this Saturday, the only day that she gets to you know, relax and she's making brunch because her girlfriends are coming over? Like, what does it mean? And what am I learning about this person as they're cooking eggs? Because if not, they could be doing something else. You know what I mean? So every single piece of information that I get in those first five to seven minutes are gonna help me know who they are. And that's prime real estate. And a lot of people pass right through that prime real estate by doing the uncle such and such thing talking about all this other stuff that does not matter. Meanwhile, all I got about my protagonist was beautiful and cooking eggs. Why am I invested in her? <laughs> you know, what, how is that interesting? Why would any actor who reads it say, I got to play her, right? So you're trying to give me some information that's going to give me a reason to invest in the rest of their journey. And you only get a very short amount of time. Okay. So if something doesn't happen within a five to seven minute, minute, mark to show me why I should care about this scene. So then if we have this woman cooking um, these eggs and then maybe there's a knock at the door and it's um, you know some door-to-door -door, uh, salesman, that, so we think, and it turns out it's really a private investigator and they're uh, saying, you know, I have something for you and her life is about to change in that mm -hmm. moment. Mm -hmm. And she finds out that her life and what she thought it was wasn't really that. Mm -hmm. But we don't know in that moment. So everything seems calm and wonderful. And, you know, she's beautiful and she has this nice kitchen. But then the knock at the door is going to be what's going to upset the apple cart. 
Yes, but I want to make sure that we separate the two things, right? That, that upset of the apple cart can happen 15 pages in. It can happen 17 pages in. Everything that I'm getting up until that upset is what's making me invest in her. Why do I care that her life is going to change if I haven't learned anything about her life other than the fact that she cooks eggs, right? What information are you going to give me? Does she have a child that she's caring for? Um, that they have a really great relationship with? Does she have a husband that she has a bad relationship with? And she's just, today's the day they're supposed to go to ther therapy and she just really wants it to go well. And then this thing comes in and interrupts that, right? So what information am I getting about this person's everyday life that's already worth investing in? So that when the upset comes, I too can be upset. Like, no, she really needs to go to therapy today. She doesn't have time to deal with this door-to-door -door guy, you know, or no, her sleeping child is in the other room and she tried so hard to have children and she finally has one. And then here comes this person and are they posing a threat to the child that's in the other room, right? And again, none of this has anything to do with eggs. So the question is, did we need to open with her cooking eggs? Like, what does that mean for her as a character? Or maybe it means everything because she's really a chef in another life, but because she decided to be a stay-at-home mom, you know, blah, 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 blah. Or maybe it means I'm always going to make sure my husband's eggs are great. We argue every morning, but these eggs matter today because we have therapy later and I want him to be happy when he gets to therapy, right? Now all of that stuff is making me invest in her. So when the person comes and knocks on the door, I understand, no, 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 we don't need this interruption. Like we don't need this to happen. How can you explain smart goals for your protagonist? Yeah, good question. So I actually do a series called Story Elements on my YouTube channel. And one of them is on goals and I talk about smart goals. So smart goals is an acronym for specific, measurable, attainable, relevant, and time bound, Okay. right? And SMART goals actually was not uh, created for story, but it works. <laughs> so I have adapted it from like a business model um, to use it to teach my students how to make goals for their protagonists. So specific means we need to know what it is, period. We need to know what they're trying to achieve so that we can track the progress or regress of it. How will we know that they were successful if we don't know what they were looking for in the first place, right? So your goal needs to be specific. The second one is measurable. So that again goes back to being able to track it, right? We need to know, are they getting closer to it or farther from it? Which is why I always talk about your external goal being the personification of the internal goal. So if someone's goal is to not grieve anymore, how do I track that? What does that look like? And if you can um, attach grieving to something external or not grieving to something external, then we'll know that when they reach that external thing, then they reach the goal and their grief has probably subsided. The third one is attainable, which means going back to social proof, you have to prove to me that my protagonist has the skills to be able to attain this goal. Because if not, then I'm not gonna believe that they can do it, right? Or if it's a comedy, then you're gonna show me that they don't have the skills to attain this goal, which means they're either gonna do a really bad job of it or they're gonna to have to learn along the way, right? Or even in a drama, I don't have those skills, so I have to learn 
those skills along the way. And so now it's probably going to be during your debate time or somewhere in your journey in your second act where they actually have to learn those skills. Um, the fourth one is relevant. And I like this one because this one kind of starts to attach that internal thing to the external thing. It's like, why does this thing matter? to this particular protagonist. So that goes back to choosing the right protagonist for the right goal, having the right goal for the right protagonist. So if you can make it relevant, then we will invest more, we will empathize more. And the last one is time bound. And not every single story is gonna have something time bound, but it's basically your ticking clock, right? If, this, if there's a state of urgency, if like in Armageddon, you have 18 days before the world explodes, then we understand that suspense is that tension is gonna stay there. It's like, oh my God, we only have 18 days and now we have 12 and now we have 15, you know, however many days. So adding a ticking clock, depending upon your story, will always heighten the stakes. So if nothing else, you need specific, measurable, attainable, and relevant. And depending upon what your story is, you can then add a ticking clock. How else can I write a three-dimensional character? Good question. So. Getting into the stuff of the character is where that dimension is gonna come from. People are complex. We're not all good, we're not all bad. We all have wants, we all have needs, we all have flaws, we all have skills, even before the inciting incident happens. So if you can figure out what those things are, then you will figure out what's motivating your character, right? I gave this example that I am the youngest of six girls. But the closest one in age to me is six years older than I am, which would mean that at age six, she's 12. We don't play the same, right? So we're not interacting in the same way. When I'm 12, she's 18. We don't play the same, so we're not interacting in the same way. Because she's 18, she's graduating from high school, so now I'm in at home by myself for another six years. So even though I have five older siblings, I spent a lot of time alone. So therefore I have an only child kind of experience just as much as I have a youngest child experience. That shows up in my life. I am an introverted extrovert. A lot of people know me as the life of a party. I have a big personality, but I love being alone. I problem solve alone. I do a lot of stuff by myself because my history taught me to be able to be okay with that, right? Good or bad. So understanding those things about your characters will let you know why they do the things they do. So there may be people who say, well, Shannon, well, why didn't you call me on Saturday? We could have hung out because they don't understand that Shannon just likes to sit at home and <laughs> be by herself because she's used to that. That person may take it personally, you know? Oh, well, that's an offense towards me. You don't think that we're really good friends and blah, 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 blah. But it's like, no, it really has nothing to do with you and everything to do with me. And the same thing is true for your characters. They are acting and reacting because of who they are, where they're from. An immigrant is not having the same experience in America as an American-born person period. If you know that, depending upon the kind of story you're telling, you can now infuse your story with that stuff. The same thing is culturally. As a black person, there are things that are going to happen in my house that may not happen in someone else's, right? So you have to then take that and figure out how you can 
color in the lines of your story with this cultural stuff that makes it authentic for them. But the only way you can do that is if you really take the time out to know who your characters are and know why they're making the decisions they're making. And now you can get three-dimensional people. The other thing is, it's 2021, so we're now doing the same thing for our antagonist, right? Our antagonists get to be three-dimensional now. You know, we're no longer in the Jack Nicholson Joker time. We're in the Heath Ledger and the Joaquin Phoenix, you know, uh, Joker time. We're in the Killmonger time where we understand our antagonists just as much as we understand our protagonists, which leaves us as an audience fighting with those themes and trying to figure out who's right and who's wrong. And now there's discussion happening when people go home. But that only happens when you take the time to dimensionalize your antagonist, understand what their plan is, understand what they want, what motivates them, right? Which is usually the opposite of your protagonist or the same, right? Like if it's a sports movie, it's the same. We both want to win, right? If it's, um, you know, uh, some kind of action film, then it's usually the opposite. The antagonist wants to kill people. The protagonist doesn't want them to. Those are the reasons that they are in competition with each other. And I've said before, if we change the POV of the story, then your antagonist should easily become your protagonist, right? Your protagonist is the antagonist antagonist because that antagonist does not exist because your protagonist exists. That was already a person who was already planning to kill people. You came in and became a complication <laughs> for that person. They didn't start killing people because you exist. They were already a murderer. And as the police officer, you came in and you, you know, decided to, uh, to muddy it up. So if we were telling the story from the killer's point of view, then now that would be our protagonist, right? And they both be dimensionalized enough to put us in the middle of it, right? Because there are stories about vigilantes. They're murderers. But they're doing it for a reason. We understand their reasoning and sometimes we're on their side for it, right? So if you give us, uh, if you do the work, because some of that work you're going to do is not going to end up on the page, but it's still going to um, dictate some of the uh, choices you make for those characters on the page. What are the elements of story that have to happen in Act 2? Oh, good question. So in Act 2, some people call this the fun and games place. I call it the trial and error place. I look at it like this is your recipe. This is your, I wanna bake a cake, how? Step one, do this. Step two, do this, right? So in act two, we're actually watching the character try to achieve the goal, successfully or unsuccessfully. Um, so being able to see them actually take physical steps towards doing that thing is what we're watching. Now we're going to start putting in the complications and I like to call it complications and not conflict because people see conflict and they go, just add some negative something, right? But a complication is something that's very specific to stand in the way of the goal, right? So they're going to start coming in contact with things that are hindering them from getting what they need, things that are redirecting them, things that are causing them to hit rock bottom. Um, and then you need a midpoint and your midpoint sounds like what it is, right? Happens kind of in the middle of your story. It doesn't have to literally be on page 45 of the 90 pages, but it's gonna happen somewhere around there. And it basically means that something big enough happens to cause that redirection. Either I'm gonna hit rock bottom or I have a false victory or um, I receive some information that changes my goal. So I believe I gave this uh, example, I've given this example before because it's the easiest one for me. If my goal was to find my kidnapped child, at the midpoint, I'd find out that my kidnapped child has already been killed, right? That doesn't mean the story is over though, because we're only at the midpoint. That means my 
my goal has to change. So now my goal is not to find my child. My goal is to find the killer, to get revenge, to get justice. And so for the rest of the screenplay, we're going to watch the, uh, the parent do that, right? Instead of looking after the child. So the goal changes. Something causes a redirection. Um, and then some people look at the climax as what happens at the end of act two. Some people look at it as what happens at the beginning of act three. Either way, it's in the same place, <laughs> in my opinion. So you're also going to be getting your um, character up to the point where they actually are face-to-face -face with that goal or face-to-face -face with that antagonist so they can win or lose. So those are the biggest beats. They need that trial and error time or fun and games time or you know steps to their recipe time. They need those complications that get in the way of that so they can grow, so they can redirect. They need that big moment, whatever that midpoint is, that causes a new goal, makes them redirect makes them hit rock bottom so someone has to come in and re-motivate them right now your mentor character gets to come in and give a speech or whatever and keep get them going uh if you're watching an episode of Grey's Anatomy that's the moment where it's like I found the new cure right at first we thought we'd never be able to do this surgery oh no we didn't do well <gasps> I found this new thing and now for the rest of the episode they're gonna do the new thing until they win or lose or uh, save the patient or not save the patient. And then you'll go up to the climax, which is where they save the patient or not save the patient. So those are the beats that you're looking for in act two. So if we used our, our Pam from the office and so she's at home doing the Zoom, she's already now met this woman at a store who says, email me, I've got this really cool job if you wanna make some extra money. And Pam is already doing the job by act two? Maybe. Okay. It depends on what the goal of the episode is. So if we're mm. looking at meeting this woman as the inciting incident, the problem can be deciding to call her or not. Um, and if that's the pro if that's the goal, deciding to call her, then the journey is going to be the decision. Now she's going to have. I don't know what she's doing to figure out whether she should make this call or not. But that may mean that everything we're watching in her normal everyday is telling her, "I need a change." I need a new thing that motivates the call because it could be the end of the episode where she finally makes the call. Or it could be that I already know I'm going to call. I've said I was going to call. So that means we're going to watch her call. We're going to watch her get set up with the new job. We're going to watch her do all of that in the second act where she figures out what it is. Um, and then again, seeing how that may cause friction with her current job. So it really, again, is always going to depend on, well, what's the intended goal? Is is the pilot, let's say this is her. This is the pilot, is the pilot about her choosing to go into this nefarious work or is the pilot about, I'm in it, what are the repercussions of it? Okay, so something would have to happen. So let's say, so and then the stuff that was happening for her to decide would happen in act one? No, that's going to be act two. Oh, okay, well, act two. And, and <laughs> only because we're talking about television now. In television, um, if it's, uh, in television, we need that inciting incident by the end of act one. Okay. So now your act two is going to be all the stuff that, yeah, I decided to take the job. I didn't decide to take the job. This is why. This is what's happening with my other job. And then in act three, you resolve. And, and, and depending upon what the goal was, um, if she's choosing to take the job, then in act three, we finally hear her say, I'm going to take the job. If it was, no, I've chosen this job and the problem is trying to balance, then by the end of act three, 
we'll know what the rest of the season is going to look like because we just saw how this balance works or doesn't work. Or maybe she didn't find out that it was nefarious until the climax of the episode. So in act three, she has to decide to continue even though she knows that it's nefarious. So it can go a million ways, but basically whatever that goal is that we get by the end of act one, when that inciting incident happens, she meets Pam at the end of act one. Pam says, call me. In act two, we're going to either see her call and then get onboarded or decide to call, which means now we have to see, well, what motivates that? Because if this is so far out of her life, she would never do something like this. Then that means whatever's happening during this day in this episode is the stuff that's pushing her to finally make the call. Okay. So maybe she gets a text in the middle of the night and it's urgent and they've got to fax something overseas and, hey, I'm really sorry to bother you. I know you're sleeping, but this needs to happen ASAP. Mm -hmm. And then maybe she sees the webcam light come on on her work computer and she realizes there's like um, some type of a snooping software and it's recording her mm -hmm. and, it, and it knows that she took like a 10 minute walk around the block and she wasn't at her computer. Mm -hmm. And so she's now feeling trapped by this job right. and she says, okay, I might email this interesting lady. And the interesting lady gets back to her at like midnight. Hey, here it is. And this is what you do. Here's a link. And she goes, maybe she has a glass of wine and she decides to apply for the job. Mm -hmm. And now she's giving reviews on lingerie. It's not horrible. Yeah, it's yeah, just yeah. like because something where, yeah. Yeah, because, you know, <laughs> if we're saying that it's in the tone of the office and that means it's a half hour single camera, so it's going to be, you know, kind of light, kind of funny, may have, you know, small things happen here and there that could be a little darker, right? Um, but that means we're talking about three-act structure and we're talking about half hour. So we don't have a lot of time. So it can be something that simple that, you know, I got back, I got this card. Oh, I'd never do that. And now I'm sleeping and enjoying myself. And here come these people saying they need this fax and this thing and that thing. And I just want something new. All right, right. I'll make the call. Let's do something new. Okay. And so, and then in act three, mm -hmm. something entirely different is going to happen. Possibly, uh, depending upon what happened in your act two, since it's all cause and effect. But because we're talking about television <clears throat> and because we're talking about the pilot, by the time we get to the end of act three, we need to understand what the series is about. So we need to know that she has decided to do this and either we already know it's nefarious or we don't. So that's what we're going to find out in the series or... Um, we realize it's getting in the way of her current job. And so we're going to watch her try to balance it throughout. Right. Um, so we'll, we'll need that information. So sometimes in pilots, uh, usually when it's kind of like a whodunit kind of thing and a half hour single camera comedy, um, they usually tie up things with a pretty decent bow at the end of the episodes. Right. But if we're talking about one hour dramas, if we're talking about a whodunit kind of limited series thing, then at the end of every episode, you're going to give me some new information. So yes, something new is going to happen so that I'll come back to the next episode. And that new information might be, it wasn't who you thought it was, you know, or this is a new person's doing something sneaky or whatever it is. Yeah. What mistakes do writers make in act two that end up ruining their screenplay? Yeah. This is where, you know, they don't know structure. This is where you know they haven't figured out what their story was before they got to the page. Because this is where Uncle Such and Such shows up. <laughs> <laughs> this is where this is the goal, this is the story, and the writer is doing this. Because they don't know what the goal or the story is, or they don't know how to get to Z from A. Um, 
And you know, maybe it's because they're just a new writer, so they really just don't know how, or they don't understand structure. So they're doing all of these other things to get to Z, but none of those things connect. Going back to cause and effect, none of those things connect. So that happens quite often. And I think that's the biggest thing. Um, sometimes there is no midpoint. Um, and you know, depending upon what kind of story it is, what the tone is, what the genre is, the midpoint doesn't have to be something huge, but it's, you know, bigger than your other trials and tribulations. Um, so sometimes people are missing that thing that gets us over the hump because once we get into act two and you get into those, tri those trials and tribulations, if it's, uh, take a step, fail, take a step, fail, take a step, fail. By the time they're doing that the fourth time, I'm no longer invested. <laughs> you know what I mean? I need something that's going to change this thing to get us going in the story. So it goes back to, you know, having that friend or cousin who's really great at telling stories, right? They know how to hook us in, make us think that this one thing is happening and then take us to the next thing, right? So that midpoint kind of gets us over that hump of they've been trying and failing or trying and succeeding and here's something that's going to change this whole thing for us so that the pacing can kind of start to rev up and we can get to the climax. Um, so a lot of times that's missing. Also, the climax is missing, but more so in television pilots that I read than in features. It seems like feature uh, writers kind of understand a little bit more that there needs to be this high point. In TV, because people are thinking about the series, and if you're writing a pilot, then you're you know creating a world and characters that people can be invested in. They sometimes forget about the structure of it and forget that yeah, but we're still telling a story, so I need a, I need we got to get up, <laughs> right? And so a lot of times that's missing. And so if you're writing um, a half hour single camera comedy, that means or a dramedy then you have three acts. So your climax is going to happen at the end of act uh, two or at the top of act three, depending upon how you write it. If you're doing a one hour drama and let's just stay in the five act place, because there's a four act that exists in the six act, whatever, let's stay in the five act place. Then it's going to happen at the end of act four or top of act five, depending upon how you write it. So a lot of the times in TV, there's just, it never makes it to a peak. It just kind of stays here the whole time. And no matter what stories you're telling, pilots, features, uh, even if you're writing a spec and you're doing an episode of something, we're looking for stories to do this. We're on a roller coaster. So we don't want to spend our whole time like this. We don't want to spend our whole time like this. We don't want to spend the whole time like that. We have to have all of it happening. If not, it's not a fun ride and no one wants to get on it. And so Uncle Gus's method would be, he would just be telling too much sort of sidebar detail that we don't need. Whereas the other person at the, let's say the family barbecue, they have like a, a B and C, a very clear point. Very to clear points. Mm -hmm. okay. Very clear path. Mm -hmm. And by the time uncle, you know, Gus is done and you ask uncle Gus, so what happened? He probably wouldn't even tell you the same story if you asked again. <laughs> <laughs> right. Cause he's just talking about everything and doesn't know, you know, his, his point, his end goal, right? Or he gets to the end goal, but we're all lost because none of the stuff between when he started and the end goal made any sense because they're not connected. Everything has to be connected, right? And the other cousin knows how to make A connect to B, connect to C, connect to D. Uncle Gus is saying A, G, you know, E, M. And it's like, wait, but what happened to B and C and D? <laughs> you know, like I'm missing something. Like, give me this other information. And he's cracking himself up. No one else is <laughs> laughing because we missed the joke. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah, it's that kind of stuff that starts happening. Do writers get confused with subplot versus plot? How do we know the difference? Yeah, I'm going to assume that if you're saying subplot, 
that you mean different storylines. And that's the way that I kind of like to talk about it. And I don't think I've seen too many people get confused with it, but not really knowing how to use them and make them impactful for each other. So when I describe sub characters, I describe them as characters who are helping or hindering the protagonist's goal. We only care about these sub characters because they are pushing the A story forward. That doesn't mean that those characters don't also have their own storylines because they're people and they should be doing things other than walking around behind your protagonist all day, right? However, the point of their stories is to eventually crash into the A story, eventually complicate the A story, eventually help the A story. Even if they look like they're going this for this way, at some point, they're gonna, you know, connect. And so I think some people miss that and they will then start to write an entirely different story for the B story that has absolutely nothing to do with the A story. And now we're watching these two stories go, but they're not connected, right? So going back to our family reunion, if I were to come to your family reunion, I expect to meet your cousins, not your neighbor's cousins. So those sub characters are here because they're important to this protagonist. They're not other random people in the world. Those random people weren't invited to the barbecue, right? The people who are here are the people who are um, helping or hurting, informing, helping, complicating what's going on with the protagonist. So we only care about them because of their proxy, you know, their proximity to the protagonist. And so I think people don't understand that. And they just say, oh, uh, my subplot or my B story is just another story. And it's like, no, thematically they tie. Plot-wise, they tie. Something about them connects them all. And uh, a great example of that is Crash, the movie yes. Crash, right? Mm -hmm. Because there are 50 million main characters, but they're all dealing with the same kind of themes and they all eventually connect, right? So spoiler alert, they all eventually get you to this dead kid who is the brother of one of those people who was killed by one of the other people, right? So it all starts to connect. When we first start to watch it, we're like, why do we need to be following all these people? What is, what is going on? But it's because their world is smaller than we think it is. They are all in the same world and they will all affect that A story. So in that particular uh, film, haven't seen it in a little while, but I wouldn't say there's a standout protagonist unless we'll say it's Don Cheadle's character who is the detective, maybe. But instead, it seems like we just have a lot of main characters and they each have their own storylines, right? But the A plot is what happened to this this boy, because we open up with learning that someone died. Um, so the main plot is what happened to this boy. And then we go into all of these other stories to eventually come back to, oh, that's what happened. But then beyond that, um, the themes are about how we're all just people regardless of our differences. So it talks a lot about race and religion and all these other things. And so each of those groups of people is dealing with that theme on their own level. So that still connects them. They're, they're not random stories that are being told. They're all connected. So if people can understand that about subplot or like I like to call them storylines or A story, B story, C story, e, D story, however many storylines you're gonna have, they all have to connect and they all have to push your A story forward. Even if when they first start, 
it seems like it has nothing to do with that. Eventually, it all has to come back to this one thing, or at least thematically tie. And the theme is usually, again, going to be shown in your A story. <laughs> so that means all of the other storylines are still going to thematically tie into them. Well, let's take this family barbecue. Mm -hmm. So let's say everybody's happy, everything's wonderful. And then there's another scene where there's a man in maybe a beat up vehicle who's delivering something and it's his personal vehicle and he's stressing out he's in traffic and you know people are cutting him off whatever and he's trying to be a decent driver but he finally gets there and he's sweating and he unloads this cake for this barbecue and when he delivers it he finds out that one of the children there that's actually his kid mm -hmm. and the wife and he have been estranged for years mm -hmm. and now this happy moment is awful because all the memories have come back and he hasn't seen his son in years mm -hmm. because it was too it was too difficult yeah and so now he's this subplot has now come into the main plot exactly okay I get exactly. it. okay and so then how so then how long does this sub character stay mm -hmm. at that barbecue yeah it or, depends on uh -huh. your story mm -hmm. going back to what's the goal is the goal for him to have the realization of this was my family? Because if so, then that's the end of the movie. Everything got us to the moment that he arrived, right? If the story is about working on getting my family back or working on rekindling with my son or you know whatever that was, then it could be the inciting incident that he shows up with the cake it could be the midpoint that he shows up with the cake, right? So we've been seeing him, he had his goal, I need to deliver this cake. We're watching up until the midpoint, everything that he's trying to do to deliver the cake. I don't know what's happening with the other family, but they have their own goals and whatever they're doing, preparing for the barbecue, whatever they're doing, right? Or attending the barbecue and dealing with family drama because they're already talking about her ex-husband and blah, 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 you know, that kind of thing. Um, so when he shows up at the midpoint, now things are redirected, right? So what's happening for the rest of the time? Is it stay here and work it out? Because this is the scene, right? It's, it's pandemic, so people aren't doing a lot of different locations and blah, blah, blah. So do we stay here and work out the whole thing? Or does that end the barbecue scene and now we go into the rest of life as he's trying to re rekindle the relationship? So depending upon what that goal is, then you know how long this barbecue thing needs to happen or this journey to the barbecue in the first place and then what scenes we need after that for him to actually reach his goal and if you've done your work of making the goal relevant while he's preparing this cake while he's driving through traffic while he's doing blah 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 we will learn that there is a loneliness there we will learn that there is a like maybe we don't get want to give it away that he lost his child, you know, or whatever that stuff is. But we're getting some information to know that there's something he's missing, something that he's needing, something he's given up on. Maybe it's because people are calling as he's driving and he's like, I don't want to talk about it, man, you know, blah, 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 whatever that is. We'll start to know something else is going on here. So that when he arrives with that cake and he gets out of the car and stops short, yeah, no one has to say anything. <laughs> right. We know because we've been given the evidence that something's going on with him and we've been given the evidence at the barbecue as she's been setting up and oh he's a this and he's a that and blah, blah blah we've been hearing the stuff it hasn't been like you know the a story because it wasn't yet but now that these two things have collided they'll make one storyline and we'll go on from there 
How many subplots should a movie have or a TV show have? Yeah, so there isn't necessarily a set amount, but what I will say is your A story is going to be in every single one of your acts, fully out. Some movies will only have an A story. Um, if you have a B story, it's now still all of the same amount of beats, but shorter, right? So if your A story is this long, your B story might be that long. Your C story and D story and E story all get shorter, but they're still full storylines, which means they have their own goals, their own complications, climaxes, etc. In a television show, you're usually only going to have maybe about three per episode, even if you have six or seven characters. Like if you watch This Is Us, something's going to be going on with one of the big three. Something's going to be going on with mom and dad in the past. And then we may also be watching something else, maybe. Um, in a show like Brothers and Sisters, there were five kids and a mom. So maybe we're definitely going to have at least three storylines, but there might be a fourth small nugget of something that's giving us breadcrumbs from something bigger that's going to happen, you know, down the road. Um, what I will say is in features, it's good to have at least more than one storyline, depending on the genre. Most horror movies have one storyline, stay alive protagonist. That's it. They're also usually only 75 minutes long. So we don't really have time to be following up other people and whatever else is going on. We're just trying to stay in this one little thing. But other than that, um, it's good to have a B story because you want to break up the monotony of the A story. Because again, once we get into the second act, it's about reaching that goal. And if I'm just, if every single page is about what this one person is doing, that can become monotonous, right? It becomes like get there or don't get there. You know, we start to get a little impatient. So if you have something to break it up with another storyline, another full storyline, then that can kind of help keep the uh, pacing up. You know, I've seen it a lot in love stories. A lot of love stories will just have the love. But how much can we take of together, not together, together, not together, together, not together. It's like, do they have anything else that they can be doing? You know, like what's going on in their personal lives that can be a B and a C story? <laughs> you know what I mean? What's going on with mom that, th that can thematically tie to what's happening with them that we can be watching? Because if not, then we can start to get disinterested by the redundancy because it's a relationship. How much can they really go through? Even if it's a new piece of conflict, it still ends in the same thing, be together or don't, right? So if we keep watching them do this, for 40 minutes. I mean, that we need to break that up a little bit. So it's always good to have another. But in general, there isn't a standard. I think that you can figure out if you've, if you've um, gotten too many of them, if things start to get a little messy and you can't really follow the storylines. Um, like even if you look at a Marvel film, uh, at the Avengers, right? The Avengers has all of the people, all of the superheroes there. But we're not following each of them separately in all the things that they're doing, right? We may be following them as a group and then following one or two of them who may be doing something separately. And the others are just there for support in this particular movie. And that's okay. So you want to definitely make sure that it doesn't become too much. Like if you look at, um, at Crash, that was, I don't know how many people that was, but that was a lot of storylines. But they were simple enough, right? Simple, 
and thematic. So each time we came to them, we were kind of mirroring whatever just happened with the other group of people on their side of town or getting them closer to meeting one of the other group of people. So it worked for them. So that's why, again, it's everything is going to come down to what's best for your story. So you have to be paying attention to that pacing. And am I spending enough time to understand what this storyline is? Or am I just dropping a couple of people every now and again, which now confuses us? So instead of it breaking up the monotony, it's confusing us and we have more questions. So you just have to, again, find another pair of eyes if you can't figure it out, right? Hire a script consultant like myself. There are plenty of us out there. Or have someone who understands story, at least, to read it to see how it's making them feel and what information they're missing. So with this family barbecue story, if we have this dad that's now bringing this cake and now the rest of the family is just stunned that he's doing this job and that he's there and that he's actually shown himself, you know, maybe there were calls that say, don't come by anymore. Who knows what happened? Um, if we were to add another character, it would somehow have to make it in. It can't just be the random guy at the bar that he goes, right. pounds a drink and he goes, hey, man, slow down. What's wrong? And. Oh, you know, I, I can't talk about it. it. Somehow that guy at the bar has to be part of the story. Mm -hmm. He can't somehow, just be there. I mean, again, every sub character has their own role to play. Meeting a guy in a bar doesn't have to become a storyline. Okay. That sub character can just be the person in the bar that had some kind of conversation with our actual character that motivated or changed them to go do something. Uh, right? Okay. So okay. that person doesn't have to become a storyline. That person can just be a guy in the bar who said whatever, but whatever it is he said had to have changed our character. Because if not, then we don't need this conversation. We don't need this bar. We don't need this location. We need to pay for these people <laughs> or, any of, or any of that, right? Right, okay. So, mm -hmm. that, so that's going to be the difference. But if I watched Guy at bar at home and then watched Guy at bar get to the bar, and then I watched Guy at bar drive away from the bar, then now I'm asking myself, okay, what does Guy at bar have to do with any of this, right? Because now uh. I'm watching their life from their point of view. So... Does Guy from Bar end up being her new boyfriend? Right? So he didn't know that when they were sitting next to each other, these two men, when they're talking about the situation. And Guy at Bar is like, you should go get your family back. <laughs> right? And now Guy with Cake shows up at the barbecue. And then Guy with bar, a guy from the bar drives up. What are you doing here? Getting my family back. Oh, that's my girl. Now we've got something going on. Now these storylines are connecting. I was actually thinking that the guy at the bar would be a negative reflection of the of the protagonist that he didn't want to ever become, and so mm -hmm. he sees himself in that guy at the bar, mm -hmm. and he go and the guy at the bar is drunk, and he's like, "Yeah, my ex wife, she's a you know what, and you know I just you know whatever I I I, I walked out a long time ago, and and then hey Johnny, give me another bourbon or whatever, and then." he sees like, I could become that man right. and I don't want to be that. Mm -hmm. And that straightens him out. Yep. And that, yeah. so in that case, then he's just a sub-character. Okay. He doesn't have his own storyline. Okay, so he's know? not a subplot story. Yeah, he's okay. not a subplot. He's just a sub-character. He's just a character who's helping to push the story forward by his interaction with this guy. But a storyline would mean that the guy at the bar has his own goals and we're following him trying to achieve those goals too. Uh -huh. And then eventually they align with what everybody else has going on. I see. Okay. So he's a catalyst character. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Just coming in to push you in one direction or the other. Because again, if not, then we don't need him. Right. We don't need a guy who's just at the bar being belligerent. That, that belligerence should 
affect our guy in some kind of way. Because if not, then we don't need that. 